You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Tady maloval lepší věci. <laughs> tak tohle to je Alenka, pánové. Ta mě dostala, když mě bylo 16. Důstojnická panička, takže se sem vlastně náramně hodí. Tady jsem vám udělal ještě jednou. Zezadu. Vidíte ten královský zadek? Císařskou věc? Strašně ráda na něj dostávala bytí. A já vůl pořád nemohl pochopit. Proč? Proč? tu mám z paměti. Ta stála vždycky nahatá uprostřed času. Za dveřma čekala Matinka a šop z domu. Jo, no tohle to byla děvka. Páni. Vidíte tu tečku? Buď cigarety. Totiž tahle ta dáma, pánové, tam měla sexus, jak tahací harmoniku. Tam bychom se vešli všichni s manželkama, s dětma, s prarodičema. Co to má znamenat? Zde je alegoricky znázorněn význam naší armády pro osvobození republiky. Zde armáda, po jejím boku dělnická třída, zde symbol svobody, rovnost, volnost a tam buržazie, která odchází ze scény dějin. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Miss Kat Ellinger. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Spencer Parsons. Hello. Checktember continues with a look at Yeramil Yerish's The Joke, shot in 1968 and released in 1969. The film was adapted by Yeris and Milan Kundera, the author of the book of the same name. It tells the tale of Ludwig Jan, who was ousted by the Communist Party after the youthful indiscretion of making a joke. He spends the rest of his life feeling the effects of this, including hatching a plan for revenge on the university student who ousted him that takes 15 years to fulfill. We will be spoiling this film, so if you haven't seen it, please track it down and come back when you're done. We will still be here. So, Spencer, when was the first time you saw the joke and what did you think? First time I saw the joke was um, for this podcast. I know the novel pretty well. Um, I'm a big Kundera fan and had uh, had read it in the 90s um, uh, a couple of times and was really excited to reread it again uh, for this. But yeah, I just saw it for the first time this week. I haven't heard anybody say I'm a big Kundera fan in a long time. I am a big Kundera fan and reading it, it this now has me, um, you know, rereading a bunch of his work again, but, but I confess it had been a while since, um, my fandom had, uh, had me, you know, reading a bunch of his stuff. We should probably say that he is better known for the unbearable lightness of being. I think that's the one that most people have heard about. Yeah. And that I did, uh, rewatch this week, uh, by way of, uh, comparison. So I, I might bring that one up a little bit. And Kat, how about you? When was the first time you saw it? Several years ago, as a follow-up to Valerie in a Week of Wonders, actually. Um, totally different, tonally and everything, but just as incredible. It still amazes me how little of Uresh's work is still available. So hard, some of it, to track down, given how important he was for the Czech New Wave. 
Yeah, I can't believe that this is the same guy that did Valerie in the Week of Wonders. I mean, that is so surrealistic, but this one is pretty straightforward, though I like the way that he's using time in this one. I think he kind of is cluing us in as far as the time by having the opening credits going over that very ornate clock that seems to be in the center of some town and the way that we have all the different people moving around and then ending with that big cock um, right there giving us the time. There is some crossover I found with their folklore, the emphasis on folk festivals and ritual, although they are two completely different films. Yeah, and this one is shot in a very nice, lush black and white, whereas Valerie just uses color like nobody's business. Like I said, the use of time in this movie is really interesting because we have what I'll call the A story moving ahead throughout this thing, and it's this pretty simple story of a man who comes to town, gets a hotel room, goes and sees an old friend, manages to talk the old friend into letting him use his room for an afternoon. So basically, it's a fuck pad so that he can bring in this woman that he knows, have sex with her, kicks her out. And meanwhile, there's this whole, like you were saying, cattle folk festival going on throughout the town. So that's kind of the A story. And, and we'll talk about the end of that story as we're going along. And then there's this B story, which is all told through flashbacks. But what I like is that it's told through flashbacks, but our main character is almost interacting with those flashbacks, that he isn't necessarily in them until later on in the flashbacks, because, well, the main character is played by Joseph Summer, who is the same guy who played Hubichka in Closely Watched Trains, and Joseph Summer is playing it, he's got this really thinning hair in this part of the movie in the A story, and he's a little overweight, so when it comes to him being in college, it isn't going to play as well as when he's maybe later on in the military or which is basically like a work camp. So it makes sense that he's not necessarily seeing himself in these old things. And that also makes us empathize with him a lot more because it's all being shown through his POV when he's seeing the past. I really like that aspect because often when they do flashbacks and they put an older actor into those flashbacks, trying to make them look younger, it can come off as being a slightly ridiculous and i just really love the way it's really clever the way that they edit this so he's like interacting with people from the past but he is him in the present yeah it's an interesting way of dealing with the novelistic narration in which so the novel uh actually unfolds um in a much more chronological way but the narration is definitely retrospective uh looking back in the way that this character does uh, but, so it's very, very interesting that we start with some action that chronologically in the novel is, is, uh, is, is definitely in the latter half. And, and from there we loop back to the material that was from the beginning. But that's actually quite true to the novel in a way because the, uh, the novel's voice, uh, its narration is retrospective. All, all of the, the earliest events, uh, of the plot, uh, take place, uh, farthest in the past. And it is, uh, sort of, you know, looking back on that. So it's a really interesting way of um, compacting the action uh, of the of, of the novel and being, you know, very true to uh, its, its very retrospective voice. It, it is it's not it's not a, a story that's really experienced uh, 
by a young man growing older. It is uh, experienced by an old man looking back on when he was young and coming up into the present. I like the way that the novel is divided into very distinct sections, and then each of those sections is told by one particular person. But then at the end, I think the fourth section maybe is like four different voices at least talking and going back and forth and they don't introduce who's doing the talking. So it kind of keeps you off guard and you have to figure out which narrator is this, whose POV, whose POV am I actually experiencing as we're going through this little section subsection of, of, of section four. Yeah. I love, I love that about the novel as uh, the, the, the mixture of the points of view and the familiarity you have to gain with each of these narrators, uh, in order to, uh, to follow the last section is, is quite wonderful. I thought knowing the film, the novel was really interesting actually, because you've got characters that aren't, I mean, it's been really slimmed down from the film. <clears throat> so you've got a couple of characters. I mean, Lucy, this huge character in the book just doesn't appear in the film. It's been really, really, slim down so they're two different entities really but i think the one thing that the film lost that i found in the book is this idea of idealism like this fable on the perils of idealization because every character in the book idealizes something over communism or folk history or in the case of Ludwig, women, and then the concept of revenge. And and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, because the film's a completely different thing, and it works in its own terms, but it just, there's so many more layers to the book, and, you know, you get this whole thing. Every character has something. Helena idealises romance. Everybody's got this kind of idealization, which I loved, but unfortunately isn't in the film, or it doesn't come across in the film. I didn't say how I came to this movie, and this is one of those, again, we uh, were talking a couple weeks ago, Kat, about end of August at the Hotel Ozone, and I had had that Facets DVD for the longest time. Same thing with the joke. And... I don't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing, but I actually read the book before I watched the movie. So I think my perceptions of the movie are tainted a lot by the book and seeing these characters and knowing more about them than what I'm actually getting when it comes to the film. So I I would be very curious to hear people who haven't read the book, who haven't experienced the book at all, and what their take on the movie is. I think it still works, but I think the book adds a little bit more dimensionality to a lot of these characters. Though I have to say, the Helena character, so I I talked about how uh, Ludovic wants to use his friend's who's not really a friend and it's kind of interesting their relationship. Uh, there's a lot more to that as well, as far as uh, this uh, character who's played by Evald Schorm, the director writer who did uh, courage every day and a bunch of stuff. He also had a segment in pearls of the deep, which a lot of uh, Czech new wave uh, directors had hands in. Um, he does not like Ludwig at all, but he feels obligated to help him out a little bit. So there's that aspect to it. And then Helena is this woman that Ludwig is trying to bed. And her description in the book 
she sounds like a lot different woman than she is in the movie because in the book and please guys if you disagree with this let me know she's described as being not nearly as attractive as the woman who's in the movie Ludwig's quite mean about the women that he meets though isn't he he is with all the, the women that he meets in the book, it's kind of like he suddenly notices they were attractive, whereas before he thought they were a bit ugly or plump. Or, and it reminded me a little bit, although the prose is totally different, of Lolita, the novelization of that. This idea of you have this main protagonist, this guy, who talks about women in a very objectified way. And it's funny... But it's also very scathing in, in parts. So, you know, just the way he dismisses certain women and, you know, the way he kind of fantasizes over women and he gets, did remind me of that similar sort of dark humor in it, which might not be everyone's cup of tea. <laughs> it's mine. <laughs> it's totally mine. But yeah. Of course, the, the, the title of the novel, the joke, and in, in, any, any title should, have a have um you know more than one meeting, but uh one of the things that I find fascinating in the novel is is uh how how many jokes uh it could be, and the the joke of whether and how he's attracted to particular women uh when he's attracted to particular women in the story and how that ends up working out is is one of the the many aspects of joke in the film, you know, this, uh, in the, in the novel, um, in the film, it's, it's a little bit different. Uh, it definitely, uh, slims down more to, uh, one particular plot point that plays out with a, you know, in the film, a literal punchline in a way, uh, with the fight at the end, but the novel kind of, you know, keeps, keeps springing, uh, new ironies, uh, that that could uh, each contend for you know the title of the joke. Yeah, the the joke in the book and in the movie, the central one, the one that's easiest to identify, is the one that he makes on a postcard that he sends to this young girl, Marquetta, and he's basically winding her up because she is seen in a crowd scene in 1949 after the communists have taken over, and she is very very into being a communist as are a lot of his classmates. And he doesn't seem to take it as seriously as everybody else. And in order to kind of take the piss out of her, he writes this postcard to her while she's away and he's back in his hometown. And he ends the postcard with long live Trotsky, which is not the right thing to say at this particular time in history. And that's- he's jealous as well, though. He's got that jealousy thing because she's gone off and is having a great time at communist summer camp without him. Because he's really... One thing I love about the character, and he's not a particularly likable character, is just how fucking petty he is about everything. So he kind of sends it in a bit of a strop, but it's also a bit of a a joke as well. For someone he knows has no sense of humour, which is why he enjoys playing jokes on her. And none of that's really explained in the film. No, that's very true. Nor is it really explained as far as how... 
his fellow party members, his college students, because the college students, they take this stuff even more seriously than I think the actual, you know, party leaders would take this because that's their thing. You know, we are young communists and we have to be, you know, very strict about this. And they act, I mean, just that he has to go through two different trials over this. There's first a tribunal, and then he gets sent to a larger trial where all of his peers vote against him to kick him out of the Communist Party. And that is what sets him on this whole thing. And not only is he kicked out of the party, but he also gets sent to this work camp where these, and I don't think they really emphasize it, it's these black stripes is what they call them in the book. And they are almost worse than criminals because they have betrayed the party and they get worked almost to death when it comes to this uh, work camp, really kind of a shitty thing. And it's interesting because years uh, actually wanted to do an entire film based upon this whole idea of the black stripes. And it, I don't know how he ended up working with Kundera, but it was nice that Kundera's book already had that section to it. That's a part of the the film that is, on the one hand, very uh, you know uh, striking uh, as imagery, and um, and I, I did love the trans how how they they transposed the sort of odd sense of character uh, from the book into the the movie the, the the way that the characters within this group uh, get summed up uh, ends up uh, in in the film. Uh, you, it, working in a in a very similar way to the novel, where we don't really get to know these people uh, as characters, they get summed up very quickly, and that that actually gives this this bit of texture where it's, it's kind of everybody around is is just sort of you know iconography. That particular section of the movie, uh, uh, for me, it's not that it's not that it's it's bad or anything, but it uh, it definitely has a, a, a of course it's going to have less texture than the novel. Does but it, it felt much less central to me uh, than what's actually a fairly long slog in the novel, and you know, then uh, transposes into a relatively brief uh, part of the film. Because it's like what a quarter of the novel is set at this camp. Yeah. What uh, Yirash seems to have chosen to emphasize though is more the idea of uh, people informing and this whole it really does fit into that whole era of films like the fifth horseman is beer which we obviously did was that last check timber that was like a year ago now and you know just these the cremator these films where it's all about paranoia uh, a lot of the other stuff seems to have just been the stuff that really becomes the foundation of this revenge plot seems to have been just slimmed down i am glad they kept the painter though the soldier because he's played by yuri sikora who is one of the main protagonists in one of my favorite czech well slovak films birds orphans and fools and i love him and he just he plays this painter that paints these naked women and tries to palm this mural off is like this is liberty, this is the end of the bourgeois, but it's basically <laughs> it's basically just erotic art. I lo- I'm glad they kept that part in because I found that really funny. Well, I, I like that part too because there's a way in which it's Kundera kind of telling on himself a little bit. Kundera's uh, novels are 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 pretty horny, uh, and this this one is no no exception. And he's, <laughs> 
he's definitely using women, he's using sex as a jumping off point for these large philosophical ideas. But then at the end of the day, it's kind of that he's, he's just, he's horny. Uh, and so that, that's, that's something that I really like, uh, that's in the novel. And I was really glad that they included it in the film. And, and the scene is, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the scene of how he talks to um, you know the the other uh, the other prisoners and then puts on the show of you know what it's all an allegory for when the uh... <laughs> it's just a painting of n- naked women because in the not all the soldier stuff in the novel they're going off to brothels and they're having orgies and you know it's like you know none of that is in the film. <laughs> He is pretty horny, though, in the book. That's where the Lolita comparison come from, though, I think. Because, you know, that's another very horny novel. I should say, too, that this movie identifies itself not necessarily as a... Well, it's a Czech film, but it's set in Moravia, which is, and I didn't know this until recently, it's kind of the center area of Czechoslovakia. There's uh, Slovakia on one side, there's Bohemia on the other, and right in the middle is this. And Kundera, who I think is from this area, really plays off a lot of these people as being almost like country bumpkins. And you're talking about the folklore, and that is really important to the book as well as the music and how much the music plays into this as far as folk songs versus what's out there. And then that really comes into play during some of the last part of this movie. Knowing the book uh, for, for a long time before seeing the movie – there's there is the level where um I can be kind of uh disappointed in a way um uh, by the by the film especially the you know one of the areas where I I had built up my hopes uh during my rereading of the book this time uh before seeing the 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 film one of one of those areas was very particularly about the music it's, it's described at such length and there's you know a lot of philosophical discussion of how the music works and you know, the traditions of how, how music is made. And I knew that that kind of thing would not be, would, would likely not be in the movie, but I was expecting to just hear a lot more of the music. Uh, and, you know, it's, uh, that's just, that's not how, uh, as, as, especially as a filmmaker, I, I should know well, that's just not how adaptation can work exactly. And there is, is a fair bit of the music here, but the way that the book, uh, is, is kind of, um, uh, an art historical uh, treatise on these folk traditions, as well as being, you know, this fictional narrative, uh, and then also interweaving with uh, kind of philosophical notions of how communism and religion work for for people. That's the kind of thing that gets distilled in a very different way within the film. Uh, my favorite sequence in it, actually, that sort of brings everything together, is is the one where um, uh, he where he he stumbles into the um in, in into that uh uh the church uh where they're they're having a ceremony with all the new babies and and the, 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 he then uh is hearing the music uh and hearing the kind of liturgy but is also flashing back within that scene uh and the the film grammar plays it off uh you know so beautifully uh where he is he's sitting in a church and yet uh in his mind he's watching and re-experiencing you know, the vote to expel him from the party, you know, the babies being uh, inducted in as citizenship. And at the same time, what he's recalling in there is, is being cast out. And in this, we get the music. So it's, um, 
it's it's a sense of what's what's really wonderful about this movie is that uh there's there's so much that it has to get rid of in order to exist but it is this beautiful kind of sensory reduction of a lot of the the, the stuff going on in the novel and i really really admire the way that uh it is distilled yeah those juxtapositions of present and past I mean, those happen at such a particular time, and they are all just key to the way that we understand this story. You're right as far as the way that 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 liturgy, and it's interesting in the book they go into this a little bit more as far as they are doing this ceremony in a church, but they are making it a communist ceremony. It is the induction into the party, like you're saying, rather than necessarily christening. So it's the communists taking a pre-existing ceremony and turning it to their own ends. And they're saying, like, we know people will not quit going to church, but now we have to basically make this a communist thing rather than a Christian thing. Yeah, because there's a lot of uh, exposition about, is it the character of Yaroslav? Is that the violinist? He talks a lot about the importance of music to check national identity. There's a lot of talk about religion as well and Christianity that's kind of not in there. But I like I like the way Yiresh has done the economy in those pieces, just using this amazing editing and the music and everything. You don't really need to to know. I mean, there's that whole chapter or part in the book, which is basically this huge, like, the history of Czech national music. And there's this thing about Bartok in there and, um, you know, just all this stuff. And there's no way they could have got that into the film. So they just use these scenes of past and present. Really, really interesting. I don't know exactly what the film's saying about the Czech folklore because people like not Czech filmmakers but someone like Mikos Jancho for example he used a lot of folk music Hungarian folk music and people like Bartok to as like a rebellious thing in his films but I'm not sure if it was being used in this way because it's quite ambiguous what he's actually trying to say if memory serves the book starts off with the narrator actually being the son who is going to be in the King's Processional, which is running through a lot of the modern part of this movie. Is that right? I mean, I could be wrong on that, but I thought there was this whole I thing. It starts with him t- I thought it starts with him arriving to yeah. find the... Okay. Find the re- there is stuff about the son, though, and the importance of this like ceremony that they're doing, but I'm not sure if that's right at the beginning. Well, yeah, it is interesting the way that the son is introduced. He's not necessarily a character in the movie very much, but then this whole idea of him not being the person who's dressed up as the king and the king is dressed up as a woman and it tells that whole story of why was it that the king was dressed up as a woman and running away from wherever. And that just is, yeah, it's not necessarily there. And it seemed like it was a real breaking with the past when it came to the son not wanting to actually be part of that ceremony. The novel is quite long. So uh, it, the experience of uh, of reading it is... Um, it takes a while. It, 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 yeah, it takes a while, which, you know, of course, is, is, uh, is, is great. Uh, for, for me, that's not exactly a complaint, but like one of the things that happens is that some of the material from the beginning of it, uh, uh, if, if, uh, I should have stopped to take notes, um, I, I didn't, I didn't register the son really as the character until that latter part of the, 
the novel's plot. Um, that, that's a good call. I'll have to go back and take a look at that. One thing that pulled the rug out from under me was the poster for this, as well as the Facets DVD cover for this. Both of them emphasize the character of Alexi. So I was thinking this whole time that this Alexi character was going to be our main character when I you know, was familiar with those things. And then it ends up being Ludwig Jan, and Alexi is just this very minor character, but he's kind of this, he's almost like this private pile of the work camp because he again is an ardent communist and he does not like the commander of the camp and ends up informing on the commander, which is what a communist is supposed to do in his mind. And then he ends up being kicked out of the communist party for that. And he's so distraught that he ends up committing suicide. So it's a very poignant moment in the book, but I'm not sure exactly how it plays out for audiences when it comes to the movie, because it's just such a small moment. Yeah. He's not really established, is he in the film? He just seems like collateral damage. I mean, not that he's a major character in in the book, but you do get a bit more about his motivations. For sure, I I guess uh, the way that I I read him in the 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 movie, it is really interesting that he becomes the 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 sort of chief image for the for the poster and everything. The way that he came off to me in the movie was that uh, he he was one of the collateral jokes. Um, uh, and, and of course, movies are going to be better at working out all these kind of, uh, you know, jokes and ironies through, uh, kind of plot points and actions. But his, uh, his place within it, uh, felt like, um, another one of the jokes that, to, to sort of interweave with the, the initial postcard joke that, that starts the action. Yeah, they all think that they're going to be funny and pour water all over this guy to wake him up because he slept in, and then it ends up that he's a corpse. Yeah, which is like, well, that's the jokes of this <laughs> film in this book. I wanted to say, actually, how relevant, though, and I'm not sure if you guys will agree with me, to today's culture on social media of this idea of a joke being taken out of context. I don't know if James Gunn would agree with you. <laughs> I mean, we see it now with the pressure of social media. Somebody says something shitty 10 years ago and it kind of gets raked up. And at the end of the day, a joke is a joke. It has a particular context. I don't really think social media allows for that sort of nuance anyway. So we do see a lot of mob judgment over things that somebody who, you know, wrote something on the internet had one thing in mind. And it goes down completely differently in the public eye. And I don't know, it just seemed really, the story, I know it's all about communism and totalitarianism, but it also seemed very relevant to the culture we have today, where things are taken in a very black and white sort of thing. And when he, especially when he goes up to, to the trial and he's sort of saying, but it's a joke. And they're like, well, we don't find it very funny. It's kind of very absolute, and there's no defense to that. Yeah, you must have had this in your heart in order to write it in the first place, so... Yeah, and it's like, but it's just a city, <laughs> like, you know, so it just feel really relevant in, in some part. Well, luckily, we don't know anything about totalitarianism in 2019. 
there are certain residences that are very clear, uh, you know, like like that one. And then there are others about totalitarianism that are a little bit more tangled in terms of the relationship of this this book and movie to the present. Uh, but but definitely the idea of this this postcard. Uh, the one thing that sort of takes it even more uh, more nightmarish is that the postcard. Well, being a postcard that somebody else could read is essentially a private kind of communication. And, and that if somebody else reads it, it's kind of by accident in a way, or you're, you're looking in on a communication that's supposed to be between two people. Uh, and, uh, you know, whereas, uh, you know, tweeting a joke now, now is, is something that on the one hand is broadcast, but on the other, uh, you know, quite often, you know, people, uh, f- fail in their sense of context because, they're they're thinking about their friends who will get it, but not necessarily thinking about the wider world uh, that will will see it. But a, a tweet is very consciously broadcast uh, to everybody. At, at any rate, yes, that was definitely a um, uh, a, a resonance that I got, and the um, it was it was the sense of uh, I, I guess where you know America versus uh, behind the Iron Curtain, uh, where the where the resonance breaks down a little bit is. The way in 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 which our own version of, of course, in in, in Britain, there's a different kind of uh, Boris Johnson sort of t- totalitarianism. Uh, but I, I think very much of the American version of this, where um, uh, there won't be the literal tribunal and there won't be the thing that, you know, literally sends you to jail for this. But, you know, all these people might descend on you in a, in a, a kind of social uh, way. Um, and of course, in this in this story, what we get is the the union of the two, the kind of, you know, social plus the government coming together to ruin somebody. I want to talk about the other quote unquote joke of this film, which is the revenge plot that Ludwig has been hatching. He ends up accidentally meeting this woman, Helena, that we've talked about before. And he sees in her, what is it, her cigarette case, I think it is, a picture of this guy. And it it was the guy who ended up making the final decision, was leading that final judgment against him and kicked him out of the the Communist Party, who he thought was his friend. And he was like, oh, I've got nothing to worry about. This guy's going to be heading up proceedings. And then that man ends up uh, pillaring him against uh, in front of everybody. So when he finds Helena, he hatches this plan of, I will cuckold this guy and I will fuck his wife and get the last laugh on him. I love this part. It plays out funnier in the book, I think, because you get all the build-up of how he cannot stand this woman. And you also get her story where she totally romanticizes Ludwig. She's found the new love of her life and blah, blah, blah. And they really, it really works on building it up. So that when you get to the punchline, it's just like, dude, <laughs> you better, cause she's wanting to get out of the marriage now. And it's basically letting his rival off the hook to go off with his student fuck piece at the end and the joke is just brilliant because it's so petty and so ridiculous at the end of the day as well like he's held on to this hatred for this uh Germanic for years and years and years and he just can't let it go and this is all he can summon against him i'm gonna fuck his wife and it's like two punchlines though but when he finds out well actually maybe even three because 
he finds out that they haven't really been a couple for a long time. They sleep in separate beds, and yeah, she's ready to leave him. He finds out that his rival has pretty much changed his tune and is no longer the ardent communist that he was. He finds out that his rival is betting this really attractive young woman. And then he finds out that... I love that scene as well, and he's like waiting for uh, Simanek to apologize, and he's kind of like, I'm not going to forgive him. He's, he's kind of... I, I will say this is the one. This is the one area of the movie where I I I, I was truly uh, you know disappointed by uh, taking it through the movie. Um, and I guess I just want a longer film. But the 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 contours, all the, the sort of cascade of how his revenge plot goes wrong uh, in, in the book uh, for me is just delicious. It just unfolds. The joke is on him over and. <laughs> over and over again, uh, and and it, it it goes to a point that actually, uh, you know, in the book has a quite uh, there's a, a segment of of, uh, of great physical comedy that would be terrific in a movie, but I guess might have been a little bit too too crazy or dirty or whatever, where they're chasing each other around outside the the outhouse uh, where she's gone because she took a laxative instead of. Uh, <laughs> You know, you know, sleeping pills, and it's uh, it, it's just it, the, the the picture that it conjures up is terrific, and uh, I, that was it, even on the movie's terms, I was I was a bit disappointed in the way that the, that that it resolved, uh, just because it it uh, it felt to me like our central characters needed to be uh, together, and that even though we got this. Um, this this kind of um, this fight that happens at the end, where he, he's fighting with someone who he doesn't even know, and it doesn't really matter, uh, you know, because he, he he fights with uh, with with Helena's uh, young young lover or young ardent uh, admirer uh, who wants to be her lover, uh, and he gets in a fight with that guy, and it, and and that is not a fight that that he really wanted to be in. That's that's a pretty nice punchline to the movie. But it's not it doesn't quite have the sense of urgency and discovery and that he thinks that she's committing suicide and he goes to her uh, and and he's got to deal with this uh, this kind of relationship that he didn't even want to have. Um, it, 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 for, for me in the movie, uh, it just it does it does not it's not cruel enough, I guess, ultimately. And the, the, the book is quite, quite cruel. Uh, and I think appropriately cruel to this character who means to use this to 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 use this this other man's uh, you know wife in a, a revenge plot, uh, and uh, you know of course of course he should be hoist on his own petard um, as as her emotions uh, you know lead her to a very different place than he intends. Yeah, there should have been a visual rhyme between the death of Alexi by pills and then her taking pills. But it's like we don't really even, if memory serves, I don't think we even see her taking the pills. No, she's just sat on the toilet. It's like they kind of condense the whole, quite a large part of the book into just one visual here on the, oh, it's okay, you've just taken laxatives. Whereas in the book, they build up, they have this race to find her. They think she's dying somewhere and they're running around this house. Yeah, she's wrote a suicide note and sent it with her assistant to him. And then when he reads it, they both find out that she's taking these pills. And they're actually the assistant's pills. And 
yeah, she doesn't know that he's not been taking what she thinks he's been taking, but he's just been taking laxatives and he's embarrassed about it. And she just takes handful after handful of these. And then he ends up slapping around the assistant the way that he slapped around her while they were having sex. And that is super uncomfortable, the way that he's slapping her. Oh, my God. Yeah, that scene is very strange, the the sex scene. Very surreal. You've got it juxtaposed with this possession going on outside as well. And he's kind of slapping her in the face. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> And the other thing that really pours water all over his revenge plot is Kostka, the Edvold Shorm character, when he comes back in and basically reads him not the riot act, but just says, you know, you are a sad man. You know, you, I was kicked out of the party as well, but I didn't even get a good reason for being kicked out. And you just sit there and you plot your revenge. You're now very successful. Look at me. I'm not successful. And yeah, basically, like, fuck you if you think your life is that important. He is the victim, though, Ludwig, isn't he? He is like the perpetual victim. I mean, I know his joke goes wrong, but lots of other people suffer because of the party, not just him. And, you know, it's just, it's, really arbitrary how people get targeted and thrown out and then their life takes this downward spiral and he actually ends up quite successful despite what's happened to him but he so clings on to this ridiculous idea of revenge for some guy making a decision in in college he's almost as petty as the party itself it's really really interesting message uh, one thing I am sad that they left out, though, and I guess it's just surplus, is the whole story of Lucy that's in the book. I understand how and why they they left it out, but uh, and I guess I guess this this comes you know freighted with with part of the you know part of the the the, the problem of uh, adapting this novel at the time that they did. <clears throat> you know the. The story of of, uh, of of Lucy comes with, uh, you know, freighted with this this gang rape that you don't necessarily have to uh, put on screen, but which to even suggest within the plot of a movie is going to be very. I mean, it's pretty traumatizing to read in in the book. Um, but but the way that she fits into the in into the overall narrative of the book, I, I, I think is is essential. You know the. Uh, the 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 notion of her coming out to meet him while he's in the 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 prison camp uh, and is this this kind of you know bright uh, bright light for him is is um, uh, really really central uh, to the novel and I, I I think also relates to that chain of the way that Kundera is um, is is using women and using images of women um, and his character's attractions to them as a means of getting at both plot and and sort of philosophical musing um, throughout his books. Yeah, because the women aren't really emphasized in the film, apart from Helena. Uh, you've got Marquetta you see very briefly through the flashback scenes, but Marquetta is like a huge part of the first, like basically a story in three acts, Marquetta, Lucy, and then Helena, and all the action takes place around these women, but they're not really central. I mean, Lucy isn't in the film at all. Marquetta, you only see very, very briefly, and you don't get their relationship and how, because he becomes very obsessed with these women for whatever reason. 
with marquetery and they're, and they're obsessed with fucking them as well and they're kind of unobtainable apart from helena who's the opposite she's all over him and he doesn't really want her but he wants to carry through this revenge plot yeah that part isn't really emphasized at all in the film and you don't really see an awful lot of the women because helena's a much more sympathetic character in the book because you get her story and how she's lived in this loveless marriage and she was taken away by this very idealistic young man who then you know she marries him and he changes and she's a true romantic and she's just looking for escape from this humdrum life and you don't really get any of that it sounds like i'm being a downer on the film and i'm not because i love i love the film and i loved the book and this was my first time reading the book they are two very separate things but it is interesting that he chose to to underplay the women's angle or completely eliminate them in in the case of Lisa. They also, even though it's in there, they kind of underplay the whole idea of Helena being this reporter and her tape recorder and going around and recording these different things because she actually has a little bit of agency when it comes to having her own job and having this assistant and being able to go on assignment. She's in the town because she's on assignment and is, you know, interviewing people. That's a little bit lost in the movie, though it is there a bit. And also this whole thing where she, and it gets played off a couple different ways because when they go out for breakfast, they don't have any vodka at this place and he orders rye and she's just like, Oh, rye. It's just like a truck driver and I like folksy stuff and all this. And it's this kind of like, I want to see how the other half lives. And it's like she's looking at Ludwig as being like her, you know, Billy Joel and Uptown girl or something. You know, like, Oh, he's the salt of the earth. The way they play out in the book is even better because you get their two very different, the way they see each other, which you don't really see in the film, which just adds to the whole comedy thing of it. But there is this weird thing in there, this kind of bourgeois idealisation of the folk culture and then this kind of snobbery that creeps in as well. It's like really, really interesting how that's used in the film as well. Which takes us to that end scene where he tries to kind of make up with the one guy, the violinist, and he's just like, hey, I got a favor to ask. Can I play in the band? And he gets in there and he's playing the clarinet and they're having this great time. But they're playing the music. There's one old man in the crowd who seems to be getting off on it. But all the other people are there. The rock and roll music kind of creeps in. And the violinist is just like, hey, let's go out and play in a field or something because these people aren't appreciating us. And another guy's like, no, no, they paid us to play until morning. We have to stay here. I think in the book, they end up going out and playing in the field. Yeah, that's the ending. Yeah, and the guy has a heart attack. And since they're in a field, it takes forever for the ambulance to come get him, and he ends up dying. In here, it looks like he might survive because they stayed at the party and uh, played the, the song there. But yeah, another like real irony there as far as like, hey, I'm going to go play my music out in the field. And then he ends up having a heart attack. Because <laughs> he's kind of given up that couch. Is it Yaroslav, I think? They meet, he's kind of given up at this festival. He's kind of like having an existential crisis in the middle of the woods, isn't he, in the book? 
Yeah. And Ludwig comes across him and, and says, and realizes, you know, what he's done. So I think one of them, and then a main theme in the novel, along with like the perils of idealization in any form, is this theme of loss. It's all about loss, these lost loves, lost cultures, lost friendships. And that is another thing that doesn't really come across in the film. It kind of gives it a bit more poignancy and makes that character Ludwig, who's really not a very nice person, more sympathetic. You can at least sympathise with him, even though he's a a sort of petty-minded, revengeful, horny old bastard. (laughs) I think it's his son, the the violinist's son, who's the one who runs away from being in the king's processional. So it's kind of this real, again, a break with the past. And the son just like, listen, I don't want to be part of this folk ceremony that you're doing and ends up running away. And I'm almost wondering, because the way that they position it in the book, he runs away with a friend of his. And I was almost wondering if there was like some sort of relationship going on between he and the friend, but I didn't want to read too much into it. In the film, you know, we talked about how Helena's assistant and Ludwig end up getting in their fight. The, the fight comes right at the end of this film and Ludwig gets up and he says to the kid, it wasn't you I wanted to beat up. And then I swear that Joseph Summer looks right at the camera right before the end title yes. comes up. Yes. Yeah. Which is a great way to break that fourth wall and just give it this real zing at the end that I was not expecting. I mean, it's breaking the fourth wall, but it's also kind of, in a, in a weird way, it's another variation on the, the, the sort of... Um, the technique uh, that's used throughout the film of this kind of shot and reverse that takes us into the, the, the you know, the, the, we, we could, if we think of the shot as the present and the reverse as the past, uh, this is quite often how we're taken into, uh, in, in, into these retrospective moments throughout the film. And so then to work the shot and reverse at the end is this kind of like look out towards the audience Um is 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 to to kind of you know use use a, a a variation on that device to sort of bring it bring it all to this this tight point at the end. I have to say I'm amazed that this movie even got released. You know, we talked last week about the ear, which was super subversive and really went after the Communist Party and you know really talked about eavesdropping and observation and all that. And there's a lot of that in this movie. And it managed to get out for just a couple months, as far as I understand, because there's a lot of, you know, hearsay when it comes to some of this stuff. The historical record still isn't 100% clean. But it, from what I understand, it came out, was popular, and then it got pulled for 20 years and never was seen again. Yeah, it's one of those wonderful films that came out of that Prague Spring period where you had, like I mentioned the Cremator earlier, the Fifth Horseman is Fear. There was so much coming out in the Czech New Wave that was directed towards communism and totalitarianism and really voicing the frustration and the anger that they were feeling at the time. And so it falls into that little, because it was being made around the same time as the, 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 the end of the Proud Spring and the Warsaw Pact. So it's really magical in that respect. I've not seen the film from that period, 
in that time and place that I've not loved. Because there's something really special about all those films in that you get the sense of energy that filmmakers really felt like they were changing something. You know, which you then, it all shuts down after 68, 69. Yeah, well, the, the, the films and the artistic output of, of that period was uh, explicitly blamed, you know, by, uh, by the Soviets for, um, you know, fomenting unrest. So it wasn't, it wasn't simply that there was a kind of general censorship. It was, it was that the, the, um, you know, the Communist Party uh, felt threatened uh, by the artwork and felt that they had uh, allowed uh, allowed too much uh, to, to get loose, you know, before clamping down. It was a very, a very material sense of what the artwork was capable of. Yeah, too many freedoms. Really needing to clamp down on that. Interesting, though, that Yirash then still managed to carry on. He was one of the few that actually managed to escape exile and he carried on working was able to sort of get in in that little period where people just started making fantasy films and dramas and stuff he actually managed to carry on with a film as subversive as this one he managed to kind of despite the fact it was banned he managed to move on and carry on with his career yeah, I would like to see more of his work from the 70s. Um, it is, to your point, it's a little difficult to find sometimes. It's really hard to find, yeah. yeah. You know, like a lot of people that came out of the Chetney Ways, one thing that is astounding to me even now is apart from these key films, the, the other films are just so hard to find or define them. They, there's no subs, so if you don't, speak Czech, you know, it's just, um, yeah, it's just criminal, really, given the fertility of that period. And even in the post-Prague Spring period, when people were apparently towing the party line, you still find a lot of of subversion in Valerie, for a start. Incredibly subversive film. So, you know, it's it's a real shame that half of this work is still buried somewhere. And I don't want to sound ungrateful, but while I like what Criterion is doing, that they put out these Eclipse boxes with no extras or anything, it's really kind of a shame, because I think that these movies deserve a little bit more love than what they're necessarily being given. It's just like, here's a bare bones Blu-ray release. Good luck. If you look at what Second Ren DVD is doing... They're not as big as Criterion. They definitely don't have the resources as, as the Criterion do. But the amount of care and love that goes into their releases, I, to my mind, I can't think of anyone, any other company in the sort of Western sphere that's giving Czechoslovak film the same treatment, not even Criterion, which is, is terrible, really. It belongs, it's an important part of cinema. Yeah. Such an important part of that 60s period. We see a lot of Italian film from that time, a lot of American film from that time, a lot of British film, Japanese film, but the Czech film is still kind of, you know, and it shouldn't be. It's one thing that does really frustrate me because even if you're really into that stuff, it's still really hard to find it. Still really, really hard. It's, 
It really is. I mean, uh, uh, you know, credit credit to, to Criterion Channel for having a number of these films available right now. And I, I will say I checked out, I, I was looking for extras. And of course, there are very, very few that are up. But there, there's a there's a decent making of and critical doc on Valerie and her Week of Wonders that gets a little bit into the context of uh, Czech New Wave. And uh, it, the, there's there's some stuff for Daisies as well on Criterion Channel. So, you know, right now is a, is is a, maybe a good time to uh, to dip a toe in the water, but it is it's really really unfortunate uh how how much uh the these films have kind of been forgotten in uh in cinephile history, especially because you know, like when I watch when I watch this movie, it's it's interesting because it's it's really interesting to me because that shot and reverse gag that's used throughout is at, at once, you know, very straightforward and makes perfect sense and is not hard to tease out and yet is also kind of radical film storytelling. I, I was really, I, I was kind of jolted, you know, by, by seeing this for the first time. And it's radical in a very, in a quieter way, in a very different way from the, the big obvious experimentation in Daisies, which is <laughs> fantastic. Uh, but uh, but I, I was uh, I was really I was really pleasantly surprised by that, and um, and I was going, oh, this is this is actually more interesting than a lot of the French New Wave stuff. Czech New Wave is uh, is is very is it not it's not just very free, but it's also very direct. And I guess there's um, it, for me there was a sense, particularly in this movie, that the the kind of uh, you know formal play really had a lot to do with. Uh, you know, story and texture and not necessarily uh, narrative experimentation for its own sake um, that uh, that I think I think you see, you know, for good and ill in a lot of the, um, you know, Western European uh, work of the time. Well, it kind of reminds me, Kat, of uh, when we talked about uh, Happy End a few years ago, where the narrative is going, uh, the, the voiceover is going cradle to grave, and the film is running from grave to cradle backwards, and just the juxtaposition of those things. It's like, I haven't seen that radical filmmaking maybe ever in the West, and it's like, okay, thanks. There's, there's something very <laughs> specific about the Czech New Wave that you don't see anywhere else and then a lot of or not a lot but some of the filmmakers are like coming from backgrounds in animation um, yes. in art there's a lot of uh, music around uh, culture around the music of the time and so within that check new ways you see so much experimentation in editing in the way music so like you said it these textures i can't think of anything that compares to that which is why these films so desperately need to be restored because they're a lot of them are just incredible and when you think they're doing it with not very many resources as well you often see yeah. like we see a old Shom turn up in this film like director other new wave directors turning up as cast members and they're kind of do but there's just the dedication to art the dedication to you know just doing the whole style the weird editing styles they had around there and it's not flashy there's something very genuine and very artistic about it. it's not pretentious in any way i think that's why we need to see more of these films restored because often when you come to them 
you know, the ones that haven't been restored, they're very degraded in there, yes. you know, and you just think, you look at them and you just want to cry. <laughs> well, I do. All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. From Czechoslovakia comes a masterpiece of our time, the shop on Main Street. It's 1942, a small town in Slovakia. Rosalia, the elderly widow who owns a little button shop. Tono, the luckless town carpenter, a simple, decent man. His wife, Evelina, avaricious and lusty. His hated brother-in-law, commander of the town's Nazi militia. Here is a warm and humorous story of ordinary people caught in the web of history's tragic events. Tono is proclaimed Aryan controller of the shop of a poor Jewish widow. He comes as her oppressor and finds instead that he has become her helper and ultimately her benefactor and friend. Out of this relationship unfolds a story of shattering force. The shop on Main Street. A searing and powerful film that will move you to laughter and tears with its revelation of human frailty. A once peaceful village is taken over by the local militia. A leader of the community is pilloried. An old lady is about to be deported. And a simple man must answer the thundering question, am I my brother's keeper? The Shop on Main Street, a film the critics have proclaimed a masterpiece. Directed by Jan Kadar and Elmer Close, starring Ida Kaminska and Josef Kroner, the winner of the 1965 Cannes Film Festival Special Acting Awards. The Shop on Main Street, compelling, haunting, a film of power and simplicity. One of the great films of our time, for all time. We'll be back next week to wrap up September 2019 with the Slovakian film, The Shop on Main Street. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Kat and Spencer. So, Kat, how are the last days of Britain? <laughs> We've gone broke. We're not, we now no longer have a parliament. So, I don't know if I'll be getting to Noir Vember. Mike, because I might not even be here. I might be on a raft somewhere, heading your. <laughs> I'll have to line up some alternate uh, co-hosts, but no, we don't accept any sort of uh, immigrants over here, Cat. So. <laughs> well, I was going to say. Now I've got the podium. If anyone you know wants to offer me some sort of marriage visa, I'm very good at housework. So you know, accepting all nationalities at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> the trouble, the trouble is where to go right now. I mean, where, where, where yeah, is there? Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Switzerland. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but in all seriousness, what are you working on these days? You always throw this at me, and I never prepared. Um, a keynote with Mike yesterday. I was talking in Noir November. Just done a couple of commentaries for them. One on. Naked Alibi, which was Gloria Graham and Sterling Hayden, never been on any sort of home video disc. So that's an exciting one. I did a commentary on that. And also for the Ida Lupino starring, not directed, Woman in Hiding. So, yeah, that, still working on Castro Bot, still 
pissing off the liberals and the right wingers. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I mean, pissing off the liberals and the right wingers is uh, is, is actually um, you know that's perfect uh, Czech New Wave territory. Um, one one of the things that's that's uh, I'm sorry to go back to the movie and the book again, really, really, really quickly is is just that you know part of the. Uh, part of the vogue for Kundera in uh, in the eighties and nineties uh, was that a lot of uh, a lot of conservatives uh, wanted to uh, embrace this as dissident work because it was anti communist. But it's it's kind of it's it, it's pretty amazing to read, especially now because it's so anti authoritarian. I, I don't know how how anyone that was calling them conservative calling themselves conservative would really want to uh, you know adopt this kind of work. <laughs> <laughs> and Spencer, how are the last days of the United States treating you? Oh, you know, terrific as always. Uh, you know, I I, I, I I totally wake up every morning and uh, want to get out of bed early and uh, not not hide under my pillow after uh, reading uh, a, a tweet that I shouldn't have read. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's an amazing time to be alive. What are you working on? I'm editing a, a film that I shot this summer, and and you know, trying to trying to plan some other projects. Uh, I, I, I will say that um, uh, it's been great seeing this movie, and then checking out some of the other Czech New Wave work uh, in preparation uh, for today, because um, it's just it's reminded me of um, you know what kind of uh, freedom there can be under duress, and so that's that's been inspiring during a time when most other uh, indications don't point to inspiring. Um, <laughs> so it's a good good to have watched uh, this right now. It's a it's a reminder that there is there there, there are there are things that we can be doing. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Started the whole world crying Oh, but I didn't see That the joke was on me Oh, no And I started to cry Which started the whole world laughing was on me
that the joke was on me. Started the whole world living. Oh, if I'd only seen that the joke was on me, that the joke was on me. Preaching to you, I said, Don't trust them, baby. Now you know you don't learn everything there is to know in school. Wouldn't believe me when I gave advice. I said that he was a tease. If you won't help, you better ask me now. So be sincere, convince me with a ready please.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.